Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. I'm so excited to bring you this next guest, Dr. Mark Brackett. Mark is the founding director of Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, and he's a professor in their Child Study Center at the Yale School of Medicine. I found him, actually, because someone recommended his book on LinkedIn called Permission to Feel, and I read something that he had shared when he was sharing that, and then I picked up the book. And it has the three magic ingredients that I think make sometimes snoozer non nonfiction books non-snoozers. Number one, Mark's personal story is so compelling and so emotional that you're drawn in. Number two, you are going to get real science in this book, real research-backed science. And number three, you're going to get real tools and strategies to change your life in a very non, what I love about Mark the most that I really got clear about on this conversation with him is like me, he does not like to be reductionistic about anything. He wants to widen our capacity to feel what we feel and regulate our emotions rather than sort of advocate for some quick fix. And I think that's the real, real business. It's also clear that he works all over the world with schools in their curriculums and with companies. So without further ado, Dr. Mark Brackett from the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. So Mark Brackett, I am totally excited. And I said to you before we got on this call that my sons Leif and Oli wanted me to tell you hello, which to me is the ultimate <laughs> passing grade. <laughs> when you get two tweens that say that they like this guy, um, you're a thought leader in emotional intelligence and, I would, and, and, chi- and child development, I would say, or, or child emotional well-being. Tell us kind of how this all started for you and, and where you are and why? Well, how it started and where I'm at are like light years apart. But I mean, if I were to just start with my childhood, you know, I had a pretty tough childhood. Um, as I disclose in my book, I was abused as a child by a neighbor, um, which was extraordinarily painful, um, especially because I had to keep it inside for so many years. Um, I had two loving parents and two older brothers. Um, but my parents had their own challenges. You know, my mother had a challenging childhood and had a lot of anxiety. And so, you know, her response was always like, I'm going to have a breakdown. I'm going to have a breakdown. Um, and my father was the opposite. He was kind of 
a tough guy from the Bronx and essentially just wanted me to be a tough guy, you know, myself. And it was pretty interesting, to, to, for lack of a better word, in terms of having terrible abuse, being bullied in middle school and elementary school, and then having parents who were, you know, they, I knew they loved me, but they didn't have the emotional skills to connect with me, nor to, you know, help me deal with what I was going through. So that was the, uh, the beginning days. Um, fortunately, I had an uncle whose name was Uncle Marvin, <laughs> and he was my mother's brother. And he would stay with us on the weekends because he was studying for his master's degree near the town where I grew up. And I just was blessed because he was literally writing a curriculum about kids' feelings. And he was a middle school teacher. And so we'd sit in the backyard and have these intense conversations when I was around 13 years old. And honestly, it turned my life around. Mm-hmm. You know what? I think your book came across like Uncle Marvin to my kids. I think that's why they wanted me to say hi to you. Interesting. Yeah. So you're a survivor. So survivorship sort of led to where you are now. It did. Um, you know, I feel blessed that I don't, you know, that survivor to me is a tricky term only because it takes possibly away the amount of interventions that help me to get to where I am today. Mm. And what I mean by that is that, A, I had Uncle Marvin. B, I did have loving parents. They didn't know how to deal with me, but they didn't, you know, throw me out in the streets. Um, They did put me into therapy, which was a smart thing to do. Um, I got involved in the martial arts at a young, at at around 14 years old, and it became a career for me. So I I, I built a lot of my self-esteem and, you know, in that area. I got involved in psychology, you know, in college and then majored in, you know, uh, psychology and then went on to get a doctorate in psychology and, you know, have been writing curriculum and running around the world for 25 years trying to get people to talk more about their emotions and learn strategies to regulate them. So I don't like to think about myself as, you know, the best, the best example I have is that people often tell me, well, Mark, if it wasn't for your childhood, you wouldn't be doing what you do today. And I get a little offended by that just because, yes, it's possible, um, probably even probable. But, you know, I was, although I had terrible circumstances, you know, I had a path forward, you know, through all these different resources and interventions. And the truth is, when I walk around New York City's public schools and I see that 100,000 children are living in temporary housing or homeless, and I go to other districts where there's high trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder, I can't be like, well, it's because of their childhood that they're going to be successful. Um, As a matter of fact, I don't think, I think most of them, you know, will not be successful until we make emotional intelligence part of our nation's education system. Mm. So I hear you saying, look, let's not be reductionistic about this. There's a lot of inputs and it takes effort. And if we get reductionistic, then maybe we're not, we take our eyes off the ball in terms of where we need to be putting our effort. And then second, let's not undervalue that there are a lot of kids that are in these circumstances today that may not have the opportunities that I had. Exactly. I think putting the onus on the child is the wrong way to do it. Yeah. Right. You know, a kid who is five years old who's being abused by a neighbor, right, is not going to figure out 
how to get out of that. No kidding. Yeah. Um, no. A kid who's being bullied in middle school without the adult intervention is, is not going to get out of that. And um, so I just think that we, as the adults who are teaching and raising kids, have to take the responsibility for providing children an adequate education in emotion skills and focus on building positive home and school climates for them. So I'm on board with this. And as a parent, what I, what I hear time and again is that the education system wants to teach to the intellect and intellectual development. And this idea that training for and teaching emotional intelligence is not part, shouldn't be part of the curriculum. So can you just weigh in on that? And I mean, I, I got to be honest, I've been one of those cantankerous parents that sort of bullies my schools into having social emotional learning programs. I'm uh -huh. learning to be a little more diplomatic and use my emotional regu regulation skills. Uh -huh. But um, I, it, it does seem like sometimes it's like beating your head against the wall. Well, it is. It's changing, thank goodness, because the research is so clear that children with more developed emotion skills you know, are healthier, happier, and just more productive. Um, I, I have, um, in my presentations, I talk about how emotions are the drivers of five key things. And I wrote my book because I wanted people in the world to really understand the science behind this. Emotions are the drivers behind attention, memory, and learning. Emotions are the drivers behind our judgment and decision-making. They drive the quality of our relationships. They drive our physical and mental health and they drive our creativity. And in the end, you know, almost everything. And I think that if we don't use our emotions wisely, then all those things kind of don't work out for us. But when we learn how to use our emotions wisely and the adults around us are using emotions wisely, guess what? We're better learners. We make better judgments. We have the best quality relationships. We have well-being. And we can even engage in the creative process without um, worrying about the outcomes. So to me, that's, you know, when I have resistance, I always go back to the science. And I always tell people in my audiences, like, yeah, yes, I am a professor, blah, blah, blah. You come here to listen to me, but don't listen to me. Listen to the evidence base for what I'm about to share with you. So you, it's, you use the science to sort of get past the resistance in a way. To me, it's the only way, other than, you know, like hitting people in the heart. Um, yeah. You know, I think a lot of us have not paused to reflect on our emotional lives and to realize how emotionally stuck we are and to realize that we didn't have good role models in our childhood for dealing with feelings. So for some people that works, um, but for the superintendent of, of a big district who is pressured to do this curriculum and that curriculum and literacy and yeah. math and science, I think they really have to understand the science that unless the students are present, unless the students have the strategies to manage their stress and anxiety, they're not going to be the best learners. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of a dovetail, but just hearing what you'd said about the stress that administrators are under, that's certainly been a place where I've been able to have some empathy. There is something about stress that we're all under that seems to be taken away from our capacity to investigate and regulate our emotions. Is, is that something that you're finding just sort of culturally? It, it is. I mean, especially in the U.S., I mean, people are chronically stressed. 
although other countries are facing the same challenges now too. I think one of the challenges with stress is that it's a catch-all phrase that doesn't have a lot of meaning. Um, you know, stress means there's too many demands and not enough resources. And for some people, that's the reason, you know, they're quote-unquote stressed. But for other people, it's just chronic frustration. And for other people, um, it's being overwhelmed. And for other people, it's actually anxiety. And what we have found in our research and, and working with people is that when you get more granular in describing your feelings, it's, it's a pathway towards regulating them more effectively. And you talk about this in your book. You have this model called Ruler. And one of the mm -hmm. things as a... I'm still a, a practicing full-time psychotherapist and I'm always thinking about regulation and I'm often considering regulation between me and me, how I'm regulating my emotions on my own and co-regulation mm -hmm. um, because so much of what we do at Sidewalk Talk is relational. We're bringing relationship to bear on our emotional world. And I just want to hear what are, I mean, I've read the book I'm going to certainly implore all of our listeners to read the book because not every book that's a nonfiction psychology book am I a fan of. And I'm not just like, you know, giving you strokes, Mark. I really loved this book. I really, really Thank did. You. It had just enough personal story to be, to bring you in, but it had a lot of science to really convince you. And then it had mm -hmm. tools. So it kind of was the perfect storm in a way. I appreciate that. Bring us into Ruler, because I think a lot of the listeners that are listening right now, um, if they don't access the book, what are some things that they can go do t tomorrow out on the sidewalk when they're listening to folks? Yeah. Um, well, to regulate I think, themselves and others. I want to just take a step back first, because the title of my book is Permission to Feel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it begins. Um, people have said, why don't you write a book called Emotional Intelligence or Ruler? And it's because I think at the core, we have to give ourselves and the people that we care about the permission to experience and express all emotions. And I think that's, that's at the core of my work, is that emotions are information. They're data to help us make better choices in life, to get the support we need. Um, and then once we have that permission, um, I think the second is that we have to become emotion scientists, right? We have to be curious investigators as opposed to harsh judges. And then the skill development can begin. And that's where Ruler comes in, which is both the name of the five skills of emotional intelligence, but also the overarching name of our approach to teaching social emotional learning in schools. And so Ruler stands for recognizing, understanding, labeling, expressing and regulating emotion. And the first R is about recognizing my own emotions, recognizing other people's emotions. You know, I recognize my own emotions by paying attention to my thought processes, my physiology, and trying to make meaning out of that. I recognize other people's emotions by making my best attempt to interpret their facial expressions, their body language, their vocal tones, and their behavior. One thing about that is that we are grossly, um, or I should say, we grossly overestimate our ability in this area. Mm -hmm. So we always, we think we know how people are feeling based on these data, but oftentimes we're wrong because children mask their feelings and we hide our feelings in many interesting and strange ways. 
um, which is why the you is about understanding. So what caused you to have these feelings? Where do they come from? Are you feeling angry? Are you feeling disappointed? Those two, by the way, are um, fascinating to me because in my presentations to well over a million people now, I have found that less than 1% of our population actually can distinguish between these emotions. One, um, they say they're external or internal, but I say, what's the psychological difference? And, you know, disappointment has to do with unmet expectations, where anger has to do with perceived injustice or unfairness. And the reason why that's important is because by understanding where our emotions come from, we can be more accurate at labeling them and therefore communicating them. And that's the R, the U, and the L. It's recognize, understand, label. And they kind of go together to help us make meaning out of our own and other people's emotional lives. And then the E and the R have to do with what we do with our feelings. So mm -hmm. expressing emotions, knowing how and when to express the full range of emotions across context. And there are so many variables that interact with that ability, like my power status at home or at work or at school my race and my gender, um, even my personality. So from micro level variables like introversion to extroversion to macro level cultural variables. And then finally, the big one, which you asked about, which is emotion regulation, the last R and ruler, really has to do with the strategies that we use to prevent unwanted emotions, to reduce difficult ones, to initiate ones that are gonna be helpful, maybe even to maintain certain emotions or even enhance emotions in ourselves and others. And what I find is that's the one that everybody comes to the training to learn about. What I also find is that it's not something you learn in a training. It's basically less work. Yeah. Well, and I can imagine as I listen to you, I can already imagine why I jumped to regulation too, because regulation is kind of like, let's be more comfortable. Let's get out of pain. But what I'm hearing you say is it's been surprising because a lot of folks actually struggle to really rec recognize and label and understand what they're feeling. So until you can do that, it it's, can't really shift the discomfort. Well, what happens is that you start using these generic strategies, you know, like yoga or mindfulness, which, by the way, I'm a practitioner of both. Um, but I'm critical of both because I don't think they're the answer to all of life's emotional challenges. I'm with you. And, um, you know, I haven't seen the research which shows that downward dog reduces college student envy. <laughs> uh, you <know. laughs> which you've talked about a lot, that that's a real thing, at, you know, at your university. Yeah. And so, like, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think that the, one of the larger challenges that we have in our nation and the world really is that we are all looking for quick fixes. Yeah. And I think that part of this work is just acknowledging the complexity of our inner lives and just embracing it and not letting it have so much power over us. Just work with it yeah. and recognize that, you know, I have triggers that are unique to me based on my personality and development. And you have ones that are unique to you and, some days I'm going to deal with them well. Other days I'm going to look like a lunatic. Um, and it's all okay. You know, as long as we can, you know, we don't do harm to others or ourselves, and we forgive ourselves and apologize to others. Um, it's a journey that we're on. 
I love how much room you're making for humanity here, right? In a way, some of these reductionistic kinds of methodologies reduce humanity in a way because we're so nuanced and complex. And then the other piece is, hands down, both in my own personal life and in the lives of the psychotherapy clients that I work with, their harsh criticism of their own emotions is perhaps the biggest impediment to them being human, right? And being able to do these curious investigations that you talk about. So I'm just sort of connecting the dots here, Mark, as I I reflect back. We have feelings about our feelings. Yeah. You know, a lot. You know, in psychology, like the technical term is meta emotions. And Mm -hmm. it's the same, like I had, you know, shame about my fear in middle school, you know, like I shouldn't be so afraid, but I am. So now I have even worse, worse, worse self-worth. And you can see how that can just be a vicious cycle, you know, of self-loathing you know, that's not going to be helpful in any which way. Yeah. So I have a question for you. How, sure. do, people, how do relationships get involved in this? I mean, how are relationships a part of our own emotional intelligence and our emotion regulation? I mean, you've kind of already alluded to some aspects of it when you talk about Uncle Marvin. Um, yep. But I want to learn from you about how we can be better stewards of emotional intelligence when we're sitting out there on public sidewalks offering to listen to people. I think, you know, the first step in all this is be the emotion scientist, not the emotion judge. And that means for yourself and for other people, like just get out of attributing emotions to people, get out of assuming you know how people feel, get out of labeling feelings for other people, um, and get into learner mode. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me is the is like the real kind of the mindset that we have to live by for this work. Yeah, I think the second is we have to be role models, like for our children especially, right? We can't say you know, calm down, you know, with that kind of uh, vocal. <laughs> oh, well, we're not calm. <laughs> yeah, or you know, focus, and then we go back on our telephone. Mm-hmm. I, had, I saw that on a train recently. My mother was yelling at her kid to focus, but meanwhile, she was so distracted. It was out of a freaking movie. Um, you know, focus, sit down. And then she went back on her phone and was, you know, totally not paying attention to her kid, but yet she wanted her kid to be focused. Yep. Um, so, A, we have to be self-aware enough to acknowledge whether or not we're the role models or not. Mm-hmm. And as, you know, at work, at home, at school, right? Our kids and our colleagues are watching us, they're listening to us, and they're learning from us. Yeah. And so to me, that's the, the ultimate second step, which is really great self-awareness in terms of being the role model. I think another step is providing unconditional support for how people feel. That going back to the judge piece is that all emotions are information. And I think a lot of us, if, especially for those of us who are parents, um, if you, um, like for my father, I realized that he was, because I was not a tough guy like he was, yeah. I realized that brought up so many emotions for him, you know, based on the way he saw the world. Yeah. And I wasn't, I wasn't matching what he thought, you know, I should be. 
Um, and I think that is what caused my father to be so aggressive with me mm. um, because he was basically afraid that I was going to, you know, I mean, this is something I don't share very frequently, but when I was in high school, my father and I went out for a cup of coffee or something. He's like, you know, son, I used to beat kids up like you. And I'm like, dad, you know, you got, come on. Like, I'm not Ooh. sure that, like, that's the way we, like, that's like our, that's like the phrase to make us feel more connected. Um, <laughs> Thanks, dad. Yeah. And I don't think he, you know, my father was doing his best. But my point is, is that that was an underlying theme, you know, that he was living with. And so, but he had no emotional intelligence skills. So he didn't know to like take his breath and re reframe his, you know, what he was going to say and encourage me to do X, Y, or Z, or mm -hmm. just acknowledge the fact that I'm not going to be him. Right. Um, and that's okay. You know, like there is not one model for success. So I think that's another piece of it is this kind of unconditional acceptance of our children's, our colleagues' emotion states. Emotions are emotions. They're not fixed. They're not things to fix. They're things to manage. Um, You're speaking yeah, our so, language. That's a big yeah. part of our, it, we, I, I get into a little bit of fisticuffs with some of our volunteers who have some desire to fix, right? Mm -hmm. Because they would like the rewards of feeling like they had helped someone. And, and our stance is that it's a practice, that what we're doing out there is we're practicing really sitting in our humanity and, and really befriending somebody's experience. And I said, you know, our goal is to not necessarily have someone feel better after they sit down. Most of the time when you're super open and unconditional, people do, right? Um, but we're interested in, in somebody feeling like there's space for them. And exactly. sometimes I think even psychology gets that wrong. I still feel like there's a, a mechanization of the human psychology that gets uh, gets a little far afield from from what you're describing here when you say unconditional support. I, I think you're right. I think that we, I think it's out of fear of, you know, people not being successful, you know, and when I work with some of the inner city schools, they really think that, you know, ruler is going to, you know, fix the poor kids, you know, so that they're going to have self-control and focus. <laughs> And, you know, it, firstly, that mindset drives me out of my mind mm -hmm. because I think it's so inappropriate for that mindset to be. Well, it's already not unconditional. <laughs> it's already off. It's already not unconditional, what you just said. Exactly. Um, so I couldn't agree more with you, you know, in that space. Um, so people are but, afraid of failure, you're saying. Well, they're afraid of failure. They... Um, they think that it, this is all about, you know, promoting, you know, resilience so that you could, you know, withstand the pressures and the stressors. And this is why I think it's so important to not have an individualistic approach because, mm -hmm. you know, when I was a kid and I was being bullied horrifically in my school, I mean, really bad stuff was happening to me from being spit on on the bus to being extorted to, um, you know, slammed in the lockers and drawn upon, you know, literally drawn on my jackets and classes. It was just horrific. And so while I did go for therapy because I was depressed, I got dropped back into a toxic school and into a, a chaotic family life. 
Mm-hmm. And so like you can't expect the individual to flourish when their surroundings don't move forward with them. And I think we've got to recognize that, you know, for example, for a child who is feeling intense stress, um, just the mere presence of a loving, caring adult right, is a strategy. You don't have to say anything or do anything, right? Yeah. Just, just be in the room and provide that unconditional love and support through your facial expression and body language. Yeah. And that alone helps to deactivate a child. Yeah. Well, I like to join the listeners by sharing my screw-ups because I always think it makes people feel better. I remember, you know, I have a, I have a kid that has big feelings. He, he, you know, I have one kid that wrestles with ADD and I have another that's probably more intelligent than his emotional capacities are ready for. So he thinks deeply about the environment and about social justice and so he carries pain about that stuff. And my listening can be so terrible. I can be so non-unconditional, right? Because I just want him to be, you know, because out of my care for him, I want him to feel better. But I always use the means that make him feel worse, right? I'll sit mm-hmm. there and try to give him a, use all my brilliant therapist skills, which kids effing <laughs> hate, to tell him what to do, to boss him around. And, and uh, he checks me. He says, you know, for someone that listens on the sidewalk... <laughs> You're not very good at listening. And I'm always amazed, Mark, when I do sit there and offer exactly what you're describing, when I can regulate my own emotions so that I don't have to clean his up really fast, because I'm usually just giving him advice because I'm uncomfortable myself and not regulating what's going on in me. When I can do that and I let him just complain and get it out, I I don't, you know, I, I always worry that oh, catharsis, he's going to be stuck in this negative mindset forever. It's like a light switch goes off. He finishes that and then a whole different shift goes on in his brain without me doing a damn thing. And then uh-huh. he looks at me and he says, can I, can I have a hug? And I'm like, what just happened right there, <laughs> right? And so I'm just fueling and supporting this piece that you've said from a you know, non-scientific perspective, but more anecdotal one. I've watched this unconditional support and it, it seems so simple, but it's, it's harder, but more effective all around and beautiful in a lot of ways. Well, especially, you know, when children are growing, they want more autonomy. So the whole idea of mommy telling them, right, is, is like exactly what they're trying to get away from. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So are other, so it sounds to me like the, the relational aspects are how we show up as emotion scientists in dialogue of our own emotions and the other's emotions and recognizing that there's a certain kind of fallibility. I think I was reading something that 50% of the time we're assuming, right? And I, yep. I remember reading your book that we grossly overestimate how skilled we are at, at reading someone's emotions. Um, that the second relational piece is that we're role models. If we really want to be stewards for unconditional acceptance and permission to feel, then we have to look at how we're giving ourselves permission and others permission to do that in our lives. And then the third thing I heard you say is that showing up with a real embodied unconditional support without this sort of drive to boss someone around to be doing their emotions differently um, is the third relational piece in this dance. Am I getting all that right? Yeah, and I would say, you know, the bigger last one is that don't 
be the knower of what's going to work for someone to help mm -hmm. them regulate, be the person who helps them discover for themselves what works best. Mm. You know, we like to impart the strategies that we like the best. That's I always right. joke that I, I like hot power vinyasa yoga. Um, I don't like any other kind of yoga. They all drive me out of my mind. And, <laughs> me too. Uh, they make me really <laughs> mad, Mark. <laughs> like I went to a class, I was in Seattle recently and I was like, if I do one more breathing exercise, I'm going to lose it. Like, <laughs> I want to. I'm here to like really do this movement because the movement is what my brain needs. Because I need something that goes faster than me mm. to slow me down. It's just where I'm at today. You know, ten years ago I could sit on a cushion for an hour at a time. Now it's not what works for me. Mm -hmm. And so my point though is that we have to become the adults who are the listeners and who are the offerers of strategy as opposed to like the tellers of what to do. And that's a real hard thing, I think, for many of us to do because it's a time factor. You know, when you're a parent trying to get your kid out the door and you've got to go to work and they got to go to school and their backpack isn't filled and their shoelaces are untied and they forgot to eat breakfast and you forgot to pack the lunch, you know, parents are, you know, like at the end of their rope and they're feeling pressured. And that's when they start bribing and yelling and screaming and threatening. Um, and so, A, can you be more prevention focused around that? Can you just build more time into the morning so that you don't have this kind of stressor? But B, um, how are we expecting people to learn how to deal with their feelings if we don't give it any time? And I just think that's really hard for people. You know, same thing for teachers in the classroom, right? They just, they just want the kids to say that they're happy because then they can go on with the lesson plan. Mm -hmm. But my research shows that 80% of the feelings that high schoolers are experiencing each day in school are negative. They're tired, they're bored, they're stressed. So if you just show up every day as a teacher and be like, good morning, everyone. Mr. Brackett is happy today. And I'm, <laughs> I don't know about everybody else, but I'm feeling jubilant. Um, you know, you're denying kids, firstly, that you're a human being. Um, that experiences the full range of emotions. And B, you're going to find a lot of kids are lying to you about how they're feeling. So they're going to show feelings on the outside that aren't correlated with what they're feeling on the inside. Mm. But it's the ones on the inside that are driving their attention, their learning, et cetera. So we can't embed, we have, well, my point here really in the end is that this side of the report card, which we'll call emotional intelligence, needs time. It needs space and it needs time at home and it needs space and it needs time in our schools from preschool to high school and beyond. And it can't be, you know, it's Friday feelings day, right? Feelings are with our kids from the moment they wake up in the morning until they go to bed at night. Mm -hmm. And so they need that kind of attention in terms of their um, healthy development. Man, I could talk to you all day long. <laughs> I'm, I am aware that we're coming to the end of our time. I want to share a sweet story with you, though, because I think it's really heartening. When there was one day we were out on the sidewalk and the six-year-old boy sits down and his mother says, oh, we're in town from Houston right after the hurricane. And she said, you know, we came to San Francisco at the time I was in San Francisco uh, just to get a break because it's been really stressful. And, and the little boy was the one that wanted to sit down and talk. And to your point about having humility as the offerer, to follow the lead of what this person, this in this case, a child, knew he needed. And our listener was beautiful. He didn't impose anything. And what the boy said is, just, 
I'm going to say a word and I just want you to rhyme whatever I say. And that's all he wanted to do for 10 minutes. And he was so happy. That's it just, I think I can imagine if I imagine, I'm assuming, but it probably felt really good for him to be in charge of something in the middle of the chaos that he just came out of, of a big storm. Of course. So it was just, it was very sweet. If I find a picture, she, she, the bomb, let us take a picture. I'll send you a picture after we we're done talking today. Cause it's, sure. it was adorable. So last question, cause I know we're at the end of our time. And again, an Im- immense amount of gratitude for your work. Oh, in thank the world. you. Um, I would have been the upstander. I was one of those weird kids that whenever someone was getting bullied, even though I was a scrawny cross country runner, I've been punched a few times and gotten in trouble because I would put myself in the middle of that shit and really create. Some, and I think mm-hmm. I still do that a little bit. I think that's why I listen on the sidewalk, right? Still in me. But um, what last parting piece of wisdom or wish? I mean, this is an opportunity to speak directly to the sidewalk talk volunteers. Would you impart to them a wisdom or wish as your closing statement, Mark? Well, I wish that they give themselves and the people they love and care about the permission to feel all emotions. Um, I wish them to become emotion scientists and not emotion judges. And I wish that they give themselves the permission to practice and learn these skills and refine them throughout their whole lives because this life we live is an emotional roller coaster. Beautiful. Thank you so much. This is awesome. Thank and you. I, I really appreciate the time. Yeah. All right. Onward. I'll let you get on with your day. Ellen scheduled us 40 minutes. So appreciate it. Great. All right. I'm off to the airport. <laughs> All right. Travel safe. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.